You're listening to The Murder in My Family, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including Missing Persons, DNA ID, Scene of the Crime, Three Men and a Mystery, and Zodiac Speaking. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. The views and opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the podcast, its host, or sponsors. If you would like to discuss the murder in your family on this podcast, please be sure to visit themurderinmyfamily.com for more information. You can support this podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder in my family. This episode may contain unsettling material or subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for this episode of The Murder of My Family. I'm your host, Mike Morford. In this episode, we'll be discussing the tragic and violent death of a young mother of five who wound up dead in a terrible case of domestic violence at the hands of her partner, a partner that turned out to have a troubled and criminal past. We'll dive into this case after some quick housekeeping. Independent podcasts like this one depend on word of mouth to bring in new listeners, so if you find that you enjoy this show, Please take a minute to rate and review it wherever you listen to your podcast, and be sure to introduce a friend of the show and invite them to listen. With your help, the murder of my family can continue to grow and reach a new audience. To learn more about the show or the cases we discuss, please visit themurderofmyfamily.com. You can also find us on social media. We're on Twitter with the handle at murderofmyfam, or you can find us on Facebook by searching for the murder of my family. And you can also listen to the show for free on the Spreaker app and even interact with me by commenting on episodes that I can read and respond to your comments. If you'd like to help support this show through a Patreon donation, it's always appreciated, and you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder of my family. Benefits of supporting the show on Patreon may include early and ad-free episodes of the show, or bonus content not heard in regular episodes. Support may also include stickers, thank you cards, and more. If you prefer to, you can also support the show through a PayPal donation by visiting paypal.me forward slash the murder of my family. In each episode, I'll give shout outs to any new supporters. And thank you to all the supporters that help keep the show growing and improving. One last note, please consider supporting any of the sponsors that you hear on the murder of my family, the way that those sponsors support the show. It's with our sponsor support that this show can go on and continue to provide a platform to share these stories with you in every episode. Thank you, and now on with the show. Caitlin M. Shipnick was born on September 6, 1989 in Camden, New Jersey. She was raised in the area and grew up there, eventually having kids of her own. As an adult, she moved to South Carolina. Along the way, Caitlin got mixed up with some unsavory people, and as a result, she found herself connected to and convicted for participating in a gun trafficking scheme between South Carolina and her home state of New Jersey. Caitlin was just 24 years old at the time, and was one of six people charged in the gun smuggling. Her boyfriend at the time, Joseph Rutling, was said to be one of the heads of the ring, along with his older brother Marcus. For her part, 
Caitlin received the sentence of seven months in prison, followed by a longer term of three years on supervised release. The conviction was a wake-up call for Caitlin. She wanted to better her life and make good choices, but she found herself connected to unscrupulous and controlling partners. And sadly, that would prove deadly. On Friday, May 21, 2021, Officers in Florence County, South Carolina responded to an emergency call. When they arrived at Pine Court Circle, just outside of Florence, they found the body of a woman deceased. Investigators quickly determined that her death was suspicious, and soon after, they were able to identify the body as being that of Caitlin Shipnick. Unfortunately, as with some of the cases I feature on the murder of my family, there's not a whole lot of information available to the public. Much of what I detail in every episode comes from public sources such as news outlets, and in Caitlin's case, there wasn't much to go on. It's why in some cases, family and friends of victims reach out to me in order to get the word out about their loved one's murder, because all too often, no one else is doing it. And sadly, Caitlin's case is no different, and her case in many ways continues to be ignored. What we do know is that in early June 2021, 46-year-old Derek Brunson was charged with the fatal beating of Caitlin Shipnick. All of the available online articles state that he stands accused of beating her over a period of time, which caused her to bleed internally, and eventually killed her. And that's really all we know about Caitlin's death, without talking to those who are fighting for her and keeping her memory alive. The details of her beating death were limited in a press release at the time issued by Florence County Major Michael M. Nunn. Caitlin was just 31 years old when she was killed, and she had five children who are now without a mother. Caitlin's older sister, Amanda Shipnick, has said that Caitlin's kids were her world, and that she loved all of her kids with all of her heart. Derek Brunson is the father of two of Caitlin's children, so now those two kids have to grow up without their mother and with their father in prison, and they'll have the knowledge of why he's there. A judge didn't grant bond to Brunson so he's being held at the Florence County Detention Center while he awaits court proceedings. But since the entire court system throughout the country has been affected by COVID-19 protocols and lockdowns, many cases have been delayed. Brunson's still awaiting trial, almost a year later, sitting in the Florence County Detention Center. Despite the lack of coverage of Caitlin's case, there's some information out there about the man who's accused of murdering her. Prior to being charged with Caitlin's murder, Derek Brunson already had a criminal record, and it looks like it was somewhat lengthy. He had been convicted of possessing a firearm as a felon, which meant that he already had felony convictions on his record by the time of this arrest. He also had convictions for possession with intent to distribute not only marijuana, but crack cocaine. He was indicted on these charges by a federal jury on March 29, 2006, and Brunson himself pleaded guilty on October 30, 2006. He received a sentence of 240 months in prison. That's 20 years, followed by six years of supervised release. But Brunson appealed these charges in 2009, and his appeal was denied. But somehow, Brunson was still free long before May 2021 when he should have gotten out of prison. And that's when Caitlin Shipnick was found dead. Had Brunson served his full prison sentence, Caitlin may be alive today. Hopefully, if he's found guilty and based on his prior record, Brunson won't be getting out again. Caitlin's sister, Amanda, has vowed to fight for justice, and she regrets not being able to protect her little sister. She says that now she'll be Caitlin's voice. Amanda still lives in New Jersey with a family of her own, and she feels guilty that she couldn't prevent her sister's death in South Carolina. But it's not like she didn't try. 
as you'll hear in the upcoming conversation with her, and what she reveals about the level of control and dominance her late sister faced at the hands of her partner is frightening. To Amanda, it was clear that Bronson was a destructive and controlling force in Caitlin's life, and that Caitlin needed to leave him in order to stay safe. Unfortunately, as is the case all too often, victims of domestic violence and coercive control aren't always able to break free of their partners, and they pay with their lives. If anyone out there listening is in need of help escaping from or dealing with domestic violence, there is help. You can call the National Domestic Violence Hotline 24 hours a day, 7 days a week at 800-799-7233. You can also text them by sending the word START to 88788. And they also have a website that you can visit, thehotline.org. I spoke with Caitlin's sister Amanda, who detailed her efforts to try and help Caitlin escape a bad situation. And what she shares is truly frightening. And if you're anything like me, it might make you angry. That conversation is coming up in just a moment. Hi, Amanda, and thank you for coming on The Murder of My Family to discuss your sister Kate's case with us. Hi, thank you for having me. Uh, and it's, it's, it's been a very tough year for you because it's, it's coming up on a year since you lost your sister. Uh, it must be pretty raw. May 2021 is uh, when this happened. You know, So we're approaching that one-year uh, anniversary. How tough has this been on you and your family losing Kate the way that you did? Uh, it's been very tough. We lost her May 21st. And I was actually 38 weeks pregnant when we lost her. And we, my mother was on vacation. So we actually did not find out about my sister's murder for like five days. I think we found out she was murdered on a Friday and we found out like Wednesday. So this was something that you didn't, you, was it because of you being in a whole different state or was it because the right people didn't have your contact information? Um, I think it was because we were states away from each other and they, the detectives and investigators and coroners were only contacting my mom when we found out they had my information. They just weren't sure if it was correct and they were only calling my mother. Okay. Um, and we're going to talk about the details about what happened and how you found out and all that stuff. But to start off, can you talk a little bit about your sister and, 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 you know, tell us a little bit about who she was and some of your memories of her. Um, well, she was my only sister, my only sibling. Uh, she made me an aunt of five beautiful kids. She uh, loved sports, football, gymnastics. Um, she worked at an eye care place. Uh, she moved to South Carolina to try to start a new life in a different you know, state and stuff. She didn't always have the best of life. She did spend time in federal prison. She did like seven months in federal prison. And this is where she met the father of her two youngest children. Uh, she was very outgoing, loving, caring. She loved the beach. Were the two of you close? A lot of sisters I know are, are very close. And especially since you were only you know, each other's only sibling, were, were you pretty close? Um, 
we had our days when we weren't that close, but we were very close no matter what, even if we were arguing or going through something, we may not have talked, but I always knew she was always there for me and I was always going to be there for her. I actually wasn't speaking to my sister and she had a situation happen in South Carolina and I found out from her friends and that's what almost exactly a year before she was killed, I was trying to help her out and then all this happened. Uh, so at, at the time she was killed, you weren't speaking to her at that time? No, I was speaking to her at okay. the time. Okay. I actually, when she was killed, I knew something was wrong. And she was in a domestic violence. She was in, her relationship was domestic. And I had uh, my baby shower. I was getting surgery to have my baby flip all within like a week. Well, within a weekend. And Friday was like my day that I was scheduling all my surgery stuff for that Monday. And she wasn't, she would always get on my live, like on Facebook live. I have seven kids. I always do sports. Everything I do, I would go live. So my sister was able to like kind of be there, even though she wasn't there. And she wasn't getting on my lives. Like at my ba- my baby shower was actually the day after she was killed. And I had no idea. Um, and she didn't get on my live. And I said something's wrong because my sister is not getting on my live. And that was something you didn't think she would miss. Yeah, she did. She didn't miss nothing. She didn't miss miss a wrestling match, a birthday party on my life. She didn't miss football games, baseball games. She was always there, whether she was at work. It didn't matter where she was. She was always on my life. So you had a gut feeling, but you didn't have any details to know that something was actually wrong. Yeah, I just knew it was weird. Like, she wasn't calling me. She wasn't texting me. But because of the situation she was in, her not texting me or calling me, it it made me worry, but I knew her situation. Like she couldn't always just pick up the phone and call me. Yeah. And you mentioned a little bit about that relationship where there was some domestic abuse. Uh, did he sort of control her uh, being able to talk and stuff like that? Yes. She, he controlled who she talked to, how she talked to him, when she talked to them. Most of our conversations were like when he wasn't around and if he was, if he was around, the conversations were very like, Hey, how are you? And it even got to the point where if I had to check on her, my mom has some health issues and we would have to lie. I'd be like, Oh, mom's in the hospital. I need you to call me ASAP because that was the only way he was going to be able to call. And it was kind of like our code. Like she'd be like, okay, is everything okay? And I would ask her and she would be like, Oh no. And we knew what each other were saying. Like I would ask her stuff or say stuff about my mom, even though it wasn't about my mom for real, for real, I was checking on her. So it's almost like a secret language you guys were using just to be able to talk to each other. Talk. Yes. Wow. And how long had that kind of stuff been going on? How long were they together all together? And how long had this control that he had been going on? Uh, They were together for four years. They had two kids that are currently like two and three years old. And um, 
she would periodically send me pictures on Facebook and delete them on her end. And I just saved everything, every phone, like every conversation, every text message through Facebook or regular text, whatever it was, I saved it because I, at one point I knew my sister was not making it out alive, no matter what I did. So I saved everything. And then when it did happen, um, the police voted a suicide at first. And then when they talked to us and I sent them the pictures and the autopsy, they were able to, like my sister even wrote me like a will through emails of what she wanted to happen because that's how scared she was, well, but she couldn't leave. That's awful. Um, to, yeah. to know that she had to, you know, use a secret code talk with you and, and to email little things about what she wanted to happen. If, if something happened, um, did, did anyone try to talk her into leaving or did she ever reach out to, you know, like a domestic abuse hotline or anything to try and get help or figure out how to get out of that situation? Um, yes. Yeah, so when we started talking again, after like our little year that we didn't talk, we probably didn't talk in like 20, the year of 2019, we weren't speaking at the time because of her situation, because I was so mad about it. And when she lived in Jersey, I was, able, you know, I'm her big sister. I was always there for her. And um, during COVID, in like March, child services took her kids and put them with a grandmother in South Carolina. And this is the phone call that I got saying, hey, your sister's in trouble. She needs help. So I called her like, look, I don't care what we got going on. I know you're in some crazy lifestyle right now. I want to do whatever I can to help you. And she said, okay. And she would text me like, I think I'm ready to leave. And I'm like, look, wait till he goes to work. Leave everything. Just get their important paperwork and come on. I'll make sure you get everything you need. Go to a hotel. She's going to shelters. Um, I mean, child services was involved in it. The police, she had called called the police and told him she was suicidal because he was threatening to take her kids from her. And that's the phone call that I got to me and her started talking again. And then like, what margin? So like two months, a month went past and she still didn't have her kids. And I knew she was still in the situation. And now we're in a pandemic and she's posting pictures of her sleeping at hotel or motel, sleeping outside at tents, going camping. She was taking the kids from where child services had put the kids and going camping for weeks. So I decided to drive to South Carolina and she did not know. I blocked her. I didn't block her, but I blocked her from seeing my Facebook statuses of me going down there. And I drove all the way down there. I found these places. She had posted a picture of her car and her child's father's car. And from a picture on Facebook, me and I've never been to South Carolina. I found my sister in a motel room. And I told the lady at the desk, like, hey, do you have Caitlin staying here? And she said, who are you? I said, look, 
it doesn't matter. I don't want them to know. I just want her to come outside. Can you please tell her you need her at the front office? And the lady did that. And her boyfriend at the time picked up the phone and was like, well, who is it? He wasn't trying to let my sister out. So I finally was like, man, tell him it's her sister. And my sister came outside. She had all these bruises everywhere. She didn't want to look at me, like look me in my face. And I'm like, man, look at me in my face. I didn't drive down here for nothing. Um, so what I was getting, like, not, I wouldn't say I was hostile, but I was like, you know, like I want to answer for my sister. I wanted to talk to my sister. Like I drove all the way down here, even though she didn't know, because I wanted to check on her. And I knew if she knew, I wouldn't, she would have ignored me. Sure. And it's almost uh, like you're losing patience with her. Um, it sounds like because you, you know, I guess someone that's not in that situation, you know, they might say, why don't you just leave? Why don't you get out of the situation? And it's not as easy as, as it's that. It's not I guess. as easy as people. Yes. Yeah. Everybody says just leave, but it's not always that easy. I yeah. don't think it's easy at all. One, if you love somebody, you love somebody, and that's not the easiest situation to get out of. Sure. And then she has kids with him, then she has this this fear of him probably as well, so she's got all yes, of that stuff. Yes, and she has no family. All her family is up here in New Jersey. Yeah, and that's, uh, you know, I think that's a classic sign, too, of, of domestic abuse and, and control. They'll separate someone from their family so they don't have a support system, so they don't have people that are there to see what's going on. Um, what did you, when you saw all these bruises and, and you saw that she was obviously going through a very bad time, what, how did that make you feel? Did you feel like you wish you could do more, but you weren't able to? Yes. So, um, you know, I was kind of, I felt like I was walking on eggshells and I didn't want my sister to get hurt. And I guess my sister, you know, obviously trying to protect herself told this guy who I never met, this was my first time meeting him, told him stuff about me because before this we were arguing. And so he, he has this picture of me and I didn't even need a picture of him. I knew who he was because I knew what he was doing to my sister. And I just like let what they were saying slide, even though it may not have been true. I just, I knew if I would have said something to correct my sister that when I left, he probably was going to hurt her. So, you know, I'm like, Hey, you got to show me around Florence. Like she was in Florence, South Carolina. I said, I want to go to Walmart. I'm a big football fan. My kids love football. I'm like, I need to grab my kids some um, Clemson gear. I said, where can I get it? She's like, Walmart. I said, cool, let's go to Walmart. So he follows all through Walmart. And I finally get her away from him. And I'm like, look, shut up. Don't say nothing to me. I said, Kate, I know you're in trouble. If you need me, this is why I'm here right now. This is why you didn't know I'm coming. I came. If you want to leave, I'm going to take you. You're going to leave. And she said, no, I'm okay. Everything's okay. And I'm like, okay, well, what about the bruises? And she said it was from, I mean, she had a story. She said it was from you know, the bedroom. And I'm like, come on. Everybody might like a little, but it's not that bad. Like, it's not that serious that you have bruises from your head to your toe. 
So but, she was just making up some kind of story at that moment just to cover up. Yes. For, yes. And there was nothing I could really say because I didn't want to like blow my cover of why I was really down there when he was following us, following us. He was probably just like, you know, behind us, but he was close enough where he had his eye on my sister. Wow. So that's, that's, uh, you know, classic signs of control when they can't, you can't even walk in a different part of the store. He's got to be right there observing yeah, like and close by. He was far enough away where I could, you know, say what I said to her and he didn't hear it, but he was close enough where if she would have did something, he was right there. And how, so she said she was fine. Uh, she sort of brushed it off, which is uh, again something that a lot of people in that situation will do. How did that, that trip down there end for you? Did you go back to New Jersey saying, uh, I, I did my best and, uh, it's, you know, there's nothing else I can do. Yes. I mean, that was my thing. Like I went down there to try and what I keep saying to myself and everybody just like an alcoholic or a drug addict, if they're not ready to be done and leave or stop, they're not going to, no matter what I do. And if I would have took her, which I would have, and today, I wish I would have gripped my sister up and threw her in the car and just pulled off. But she would have still found a way to get back down there, more than likely. Oh, that's 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 awful. Um, and so you do you feel some kind of guilt or or sadness that you couldn't have done something uh, more? Yes, I wish I did so much more. But everybody always says, look, you did what you could, you tried. But then I'm like, no, I'm the bigger sister. I should have just pulled her from there and just like held her captive. But everybody says, no, she would have just ran back and served right. Because I guess they try to make me feel like not guilty. Like I did do everything I could, which I really did. Like I would talk to her, screenshot everything. And because of everything I did is what got this man arrested finally oh. and was he was he arrested for domestic abuse related stuff before she was killed no she never went through with anything and i feel like south carolina lacks that they're actually i have done studies because i'm trying to write a book about my sister and south carolina is like very high for domestic violence rate it's, it's something that's too common you think down there yes it is so after you went back to new jersey uh kate stayed with him and then may of 2000 well may of the next year okay when she was murdered yeah may 2021 came and then you get the news not soon after she was killed but actually uh um several days later was that shocking i mean i know you said that you in your mind you thought something was going to happen all along but hearing the words that she was she was dead were you shocked by that or did you think that it was something that was going to happen eventually i mean i knew it was eventually going to happen and i was very shocked that it happened right then and there because at the time, it was one of my happiest moments. I was about to have give birth to a baby girl. And I get a phone call at like 10 o'clock at night. 
on a Wednesday, that Wednesday night, I think it's like May 25th. And I was laughing and joking and the phone call, they were like, are you okay? I said, yeah, I'm fine. Because we were doing, we, I, me and my fiance were being goofy and we bought watermelons to tie to his belly so he could feel how it feels to be pregnant. And um, we get a phone call and they're like, are you okay? I'm like, yeah, we're just sitting here laughing and joking. And they asked where my fiance was. I said, he's right here. And they're like, can you put him on the phone? And I said, yes. And I always talk on speakerphone. And they told him to take it off speakerphone. And I guess they told him to walk away. And when he walked away, he walked to the bathroom, which is down the hallway. And I stood in our bedroom like my sister's dead, isn't she? And he was in the bathroom punching the wall. Like, how am I supposed to tell her she's about to have a baby? Mm -hmm. So they didn't want to upset you because they didn't want you, you know, your baby to, you know, have an issue or you have any kind yeah. of health issues. Uh, so what should have been a happy time was now uh, a very awful time. Devastating, yes. Uh, so he initially told police that it was either an accident or she took her own life or something like that. But uh, I'm, I'm guessing you didn't think that for a second. You knew he had something to do with it. Yeah. I, as soon as we found out my sister was dead, the next morning, I um, took I went to my mother's house with my fiancé and my cousin. I got the phone number. I called him like, I hope y'all arrested Derek because he killed my sister. And... I could tell you exactly. I have the crying, the police report. It says that he made a phone call to the police saying that it was a possible gunshot wound, but there was no gunshot wound. They didn't find no gunshot. And he tried to say she slipped and fell in her bathroom, which was not the case either. It sounds like they saw through the story. You know, initially they may have thought that he it, it may have been a suicide but it seems like pretty quickly they caught on to him and and didn't believe him and they arrested him well um, yes they took him to they took him to the police station that day for questioning i guess on may 21st and he was released when i found out i went i went to facebook i'm very social media i'm very social and when i did that i saw that my sister you know, on Facebook, you could tell, like, if somebody's online or something. It said my sister was online. So I start inboxing them, and they're reading the messages, and I'm like, stop doing this. It's not funny. I screenshotted all that. I called the police, and they were like, well, you, there was nothing they could do. And the guy who did it, my sister's boyfriend, even went as far as calling my mom's house after we found out, he called my mother's house, crying to my mom, saying he didn't do it. It was not him. And I felt like that was harassment because my mom and me are considered the victims. And South Carolina said, no, he did nothing wrong. And I said, okay, that's weird to me, but I guess he didn't do anything wrong. And they had me send them all the pictures, all the emails, everything I had saved from four years 
of me and my sister and her sending me stuff, had me send it to them, and then they issued a warrant for his arrest, and they arrested him June 2nd of 2021, and that's the same day I went in the hospital to have my baby, and I was induced, but I had her the next day, but it all ran into each other. Wow. And so it's a, a really tough time dealing with all this stuff and then still trying to have a baby, which is supposed to be a, a happy time. It must have been a, a very difficult time for you to process and get through. Yeah, it was. It still is. Wow. So now Bronson uh, is in jail awaiting trial. Is that correct? Yes. Um, he's did bail hearings and has been obviously denied. Um, we don't know when trial's going to come at all. Is it delayed because of COVID stuff? I mean, yeah. Well, they said it could take up to a year and the year is coming and we still haven't heard anything. But they also told us it could be delayed more because of COVID because they're still working on cases from 2018 and 2019. Uh, so it could be a, a slow grind to get some kind of justice. Yes. Uh, so uh, how tough do you think that's going to be? Are you go Do you plan on going to the trial? Is your family going down there to, to do that? Yes, I know me and my mother and my father will probably, def I'm definitely going down there. And are you, you think it's going to be tough on you to, to get through that? Um. Yes, very tough. But I'm a very strong person. And I'm trying to be strong. And I don't, when we go to trial, my goal is to not make it about Brunson, but make it about my sister and everything about my sister. And not put the focus on him, but you keep the focus on her so people know that she's the victim. Yes, and that she was just a loving, caring, outgoing person. Obviously, this has been hell on your entire family going through all this, but I imagine for her kids, you know, young children, their mom not being there, how, how are they all dealing with it? I mean, they actually seem stronger than us, and they, from my acknowledgement, they were there when it happened and he took my two older nieces and nephews well older niece and nephew to school and he dropped his two kids off with his sister and his two younger kids and we've been trying to get them for almost nine months his two are still with his family and the other two are with a grandmother in South Carolina I have no contact with the other two at all, which kills me because just like she's the aunt of those kids, I'm also the aunt to those kids. Sure. Sure. So now this is just something else. That's another piece of the thing that's dropped. That's causing pain for your family. Yeah. Because we lost my sister and my nieces and nephews. Wow. So you mentioned earlier that you wanted to write a book um, uh, about this case, about your sister. What 
message do you want to send to people that would read that book if you write it and then or listen to this podcast? What do you want them to know? What what kind of message do you want to send? Um, one that loves and it hurt. And to uh the second one would be to get out before it's too late. And that I I personally feel like domestic violence isn't just something you fall into because when I do my research about my family, I know aunts and my mom and other people who've been in it. So I'm not saying it's like in our DNA to be in a domestic violence relationship, but it happens. And even though you don't think it could happen to you or your family, it definitely can. I sometimes I feel like I'm living like a lifetime movie. Mm. And, and it's not, unfortunately it's not a movie. It's real life for you. Yeah. But it's just something you would see like on lifetime or in the movies. Yeah. And are you sort of becoming like an advocate, you know, for domestic violence awareness? I definitely am. I'm trying to do any and everything I can do to support domestic violence. Um, even with me just sharing my sister's story on Facebook, I've had people that I've never spoke to come to me and say, Hey, look, hearing about your sister, seeing her pictures made me leave, made me get out. And knowing that my sister's story is doing that is what kind of makes me able to push through every day that even though I lost my sister, that my sister is able to save somebody else and save somebody else's sister, mother, daughter. Yeah. And that's, if there's anything uh, positive in all of this terrible stuff, that maybe that's it, that, you know, her, what happened to her can, can help someone else that's maybe listening to this podcast episode or that will read your book. You know, it'll help someone. And uh, that's a good thing. Yeah. Well, I, I want to thank you for coming on, Amanda, to talk about your sister's case. And I, I'm hoping for your family that you get justice when this finally does hit court and um, this man's held accountable for what he did and, and doesn't get out to do it to someone else. Yes, me too. <laughs> thank you once again for joining me for this episode of The Murder of My Family. I'd like to thank Sonny Landon for writing and research assistance in this episode. As we wrap up, I'd like to play a preview for a true crime podcast. It's called Unethical. Be sure to give it a listen. We'll be back here soon with an all-new episode of The Murder of My Family, and I hope you'll join me for it. But before you go, remember that every murder victim means something to somebody. Hi, I'm Celeste. Hi, I'm Richard. Hey, I'm Christy. And I'm Tally. We're the hosts of Unethical Podcast. Every episode, we take a humorous dive into a case study that poses an ethical question, like, should mentally ill murderers ever be released? No. We discuss what the outcomes of these cases are and what they should be, with a unique guest host every episode. Richard needs some more testosterone around here. Nah, I think it's mostly coming from Celeste. Girls are mean. 
Our podcast is no holds barred, true crime, comedy, adult content, and definitely not for everybody. But, but like most people, most people aren't like can handle swear words and stuff, right? Am I right about that? No. No. You can subscribe wherever you eat your podcast to listen. Follow us on Instagram where we post our teasers to guess what's coming next. And join us on Facebook to get involved in the conversation. Welcome to Unethical Podcast.